Welcome to the Hot Crime Cold Coffee podcast with Pauline and Angie. Each week we bring you new episodes on Wednesdays and Fridays. Each episode includes our favorite coffee that we're drinking, a missing person spotlight, and whatever case we're currently working on. We also have bonus episodes Monday through Friday, daily cup of true crime in 15 minutes or less, where we share trivia, true crime updates and headlines, and fun facts. So join us. Please be sure to follow us on social media for bonus material. Listener discretion is advised due to sensitive and sometimes violent content. Hey there, and welcome to episode 13 of the Hot Crime Cold Coffee podcast, part 12 of the Vallo Daybell case. So it's just me, Pauline, today because Angie went hunting to her super secret place down in Utah. It's a big family thing that they do every couple of years. And this may be the last time that her father-in-law goes as well as her father-in-law's brother. So it's a pretty big deal. So she's going to be gone at least for this episode and the three after that. So you're just going to be listening to me for the next two weeks. As usual, I have your featured coffee today, your missing person spotlight, and then the rest of the episode is going to be about November 2019 of the Vallow Daybell case. We've been following the timeline pretty much from the very beginning. We started out with Lori's personal life until she met Chad We explored Chad's personal life until he met Lori and then we converged on that timeline starting the beginning or the end of 2018, the beginning of 2019. When Angie and I first started this podcast, we weren't sure that we were going to be able to get through the timeline and everything that's happened since the kids were first reported missing in November of 2019 before the trial, but because the trial has been postponed indefinitely, meaning the January trial date was vacated and a new trial date has not yet been set. Hopefully we know more at this next uh, motion hearing in November. I think it's on November 10th. So hopefully we'll have more answers. That's, I think, was supposed to be the status hearing before the trial would start in January. And I think that's what it might still be, but there definitely won't be the trial. And the motion to sever will be discussed on November 10th. Before we get to November 2019 of the Vallow Daybell case timeline, I've got your coffee for you. And it is by far my most favorite coffee. It's kind of hard for me to get. 
It is the Rio Grande Roasters Pinion Roast. And that was the coffee that I would drink every single day when we lived in New Mexico. They have these huge three pound bags that you can get at Sam's Club. And pretty much every grocery store in New Mexico. It's hard to find elsewhere. You can get it on Amazon, but it is a little bit more expensive. So every couple of years, either my sister-in-law or my sister-in-law's parents, when they go to New Mexico, they'll pick me up a bag. I really should check with my neighbor who lives the majority of the time in Arizona to see if maybe she can get it down there. But it is the most delicious coffee ever. I love Pinion Roast. There's another brand that makes it. But Rio Grande Roasters, hands down, is the best. And if you don't know what pinions are, they're like these little scrubby pine trees that grow in New Mexico and Arizona. And the coffee oh my gosh it's just fantastic it's usually a light to medium roast but it just has this really nutty smoky flavor to it that I haven't been able to find in any other coffee as we've mentioned before for our missing person spotlight we're going through the alphabet by state and choosing the missing child that has been missing the longest. So today it's Hawaii, and the person that we're featuring is Stacy Hanani Kilakoma. She's been missing since October 25th, or August 25th, 1986, from Anahola, Hawaii. She's listed as endangered and missing. She's female and a Pacific Islander. She was born on October 1st, 1971. She'd be 51 years old. At the time of her disappearance, she was 14 years old. She was about 5'2 or 5'3 and 108 to 118 pounds. She has brown hair, brown eyes, and she has a round freckle type mark on her left ankle and a six to eight inch scar on her elbow. There's conflicting stories regarding her disappearance. One of the stories is that she was last seen at a party at Anahola Beach Park in Anahola, Hawaii. The other story was that she was at her boyfriend's house on August 25th, 1986. Her boyfriend said he went to the store and when he came home, the door was open and the TV was on, but Stacy was gone. Her slippers were left by the door. In 1986, a flight attendant claimed he had seen Stacy in California. The sighting has never been confirmed and her case remains unsolved. And as I was reminded earlier today, when I was going through my tweets, a, another true crime podcaster reminded all of the other podcasters that we always have hope. We should always mention that these cases will be solved one day and it will.
If you have any information regarding this case, you can contact the Kauai Police Department at 808-241-1696. During the daily episodes, I bring up some of the new crime headlines, updates to cases, or things that I just find interesting. And during these full episodes, sometimes I can get into more detail. For the next few minutes, I'm discussing a case that is coming out of England. And if you are sensitive to crimes against children, you may want to skip forward about five minutes. There are not a lot of women serial killers. It's I don't even know what the statistics are, but in the U.S., there's maybe been between 10 to 20 that they're aware of. There is a case out of England right now, that of Lucy Letby, and she's currently on a trial. She has pled not guilty, and she has murdered five infant boys and two infant girls at the hospital that she worked at between June of 2015 and June of 2016. It's extremely rare that any serial killer kills children that small, but for a woman to do it, it's... I don't even have words for it. It's outside even the realm realm of serial killers. I've been listening to the audiobook Lady Killers by Tori Telfer. You can find it on Amazon. I'm actually listening to it on Scribd. And it's extremely fascinating about some of the women in history that have become serial killers, it's easier for them to hide in plain sight. And this woman, not only did she, or is she being accused, because again, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. Not only is she accused of killing seven infants, but there were cases that she attempted And she was able to save the babies. As a mom, I find it unfathomable. I think it's even worse than the Valo Daybell case. Because these babies were just starting their life. They were little itty babies brand new and how this could even happen and how it went on for so long. They were in the neonatal unit of the Countess of Chester Hospital in Manchester. And this was between June of 2015 and June of 2016. And she was a baby nurse. I also think it's wild that it has taken so long for her to stand trial. 
it's been six years. So it's definitely one to follow. And I'm hoping someone will write a book about it or go into more depth. Maybe Angie and I should add it to our list. If you love true crime podcasts, but you're looking for something new and different to listen to, then you need, 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 need to listen to the podcast, The Letter from Limonetta. They're the ones who produce it and it's on KSL Podcasts. You can find it on any podcast platform and it is amazing. It's going to make you cry, but in a good way. And it's the journey of one family whose son was killed to how their life was changed, but how they could also forgive the man who did it and live their life to the fullest after this tragedy. I don't want to say any more than that because it'll give it away, but you need to listen to that podcast. Not your typical true crime podcast, again, but a beautiful story, very well done. I absolutely have loved listening to it every week. Since the motion hearing last week on Wednesday for the Vallow Dayball case, there have been no new updates, which is a little weird because for a while there, they were almost every single day. And the last thing that I wanted to mention before I get to the rest of the episode is that this weekend I'm working hard on our website. All of the show notes should be caught up. There's going to be a list of all of the coffees that we've been recommending. It's going to be ongoing and it's going to be fantastic. I just need more than a couple hours an evening to get it all put together and finished up. Friday's episode, we ended with October of 2019. And today we're going through November of 2019. This is when the kids were reported as missing and everything that led up to it from the end of October to the end of November. As I mentioned last episode, the end of October, beginning of November, people were starting to get really concerned that JJ and Tylee were missing. They were getting mixed messages from Lori. The alleged communication from Tylee was bizarre and unusual. And everyone was getting a different story of where the kids were at. During the first week of November of 2019, the Rexburg Police Department was contacted by the Gilbert and Chandler Police Departments after the attempted shooting of Brandon Boudreaux for help in obtaining search warrants for the Jeep Wrangler. 
this was Tylee's Jeep Wrangler, but it had been registered to Charles Vallow. The spare tire of the Jeep and the back seat were put in the storage unit. It was caught on camera. And within 24 hours, they were taking the tire and the and the back seat out of the storage unit. It's the alleged vehicle that was involved in the attempted shooting of Brandon Boudreaux, who is the ex-husband of Melanie Boudreaux, who is Lori Vallow's niece. Also, in the beginning of November, both Gilbert and the Chandler Police Departments were aware of all of the concerns that Kay Woodcock had regarding JJ possibly missing. And so, Detective Hermosillo started intermittent intermittent surveillance on Lori at the request of the Gilbert Police Department. He reported that he did not see JJ when he was performing surveillance during the month of November. So at this point, they're concerned for the welfare of the children because nobody has seen them or heard from them. And also, this vehicle that was supposedly involved in an alleged murder attempt is found in Idaho with Lori or Alex or whoever had it at the time. One of the things that you need to note here is that Tylee's vehicle, which is the Jeep, is still being driven around Rexburg, has just been seen in Arizona, yet the last time anyone saw her was the very beginning of September. Tammy Daybell had passed away just a few weeks earlier, and during the surveillance, Chad and Lori are seen holding hands and being romantic with each other. On November 3rd, Kay Woodcock sends an email to the Chandler P Police Department letting them know that Lori and the kids had moved to Rexburg. She now has the actual address because Lori used Charles Vallow's Amazon account to order her wedding rings which she ordered before Tammy Daybell passed away. On November 3rd, Lori and Chad fly to Hawaii. On November 4th, Tylee Ryan's 2018 Jeep Wrangler, which is still registered to Charles Vallow, is seized and impounded with a search warrant in Rexburg, Idaho. Again, this vehicle is considered possibly part of a murder attempt, and 
the weird thing is they found the car, but why didn't they question where Tylee was? Because she's the one who drives it around and it's basically hers, but there doesn't seem to be any follow through there that we're aware of. Again, not all the information that has been collected in the last couple of years has been released, even though a lot has. On November 5th, Lori and Chad marry in Kauai. Right after Lori and Chad got married, they started looking for rentals in Hawaii. They reported to all of the homeowners that they didn't have any children. This seemed to be an ongoing theme because in October and November, there are multiple statements from multiple people saying that Lori didn't have any children, that she was an empty nester or she didn't have any children to begin with. Or that there was even a story that she told someone that Tylee had died a year before with no mention of JJ. Something that I've noticed in all of this is why didn't any of Lori's family question where JJ and Tylee were? I don't know if it's because maybe they weren't a close family or... They didn't think anything was wrong. It's a little bizarre that Melanie's mother and her sister and even her niece, Melanie Boudreau, didn't really seem to notice that the kids were gone. But then again, they might be one of those families that they just don't rock the boat. They don't ask questions. It's... You look forward and you stay in your lane. Around November 7th of 2019, Brandon Boudreaux's business partner's wife, Jess, talks with Lori's niece, Melanie Pulowski, about JJ and Tylee. At this point... Jess, Brandon, and the Woodcocks, they know that these kids are missing because there's been no contact with them for the last couple of weeks. And Melanie tells Jess that she trusts Lori, that the kids are fine. Melanie is actually living in Idaho at this point in the same apartment complex as Alex and Lori. I would think she would have been a little bit more suspicious that these kids, she hasn't seen them for over two months. Brandon Boudreaux went into hiding with his kids because he was concerned for their safety. Melanie Pulowski Cope Boudreaux, however you want to call her, he had filed divorce from her because he was concerned with her fanatical religious beliefs. She shared the same ones as Lori and Chad. And 
That's why Brandon filed for divorce and hid the kids from her. I thought that there had only been one incident in American Fork, but there were actually two. The first time was on November 12th. Melanie trespassed on Brandon's parents' property in American Fork, Utah, where Brandon is hiding with the kids. She went there with her uncle, Alex. And then on November 14th, she trespasses again around 10.30 p.m., saying that she has a court order that she can take the children back. The body cam footage can be found online, and we will include a link to that in the show notes. Melanie's not physically aggressive, but she's pretty adamant that she's going to take those kids. Law enforcement cite her for criminal trespassing and ask her to leave, but then they decide to arrest her instead and they give her a domestic violence enhancement. She's also there with Alex again. She got booked into the Utah County Jail. Alex posts her bail and eventually once she goes in front of the judge I believe he put her on probation for two years. Now I have to backtrack about a day. On November 13th Kay Woodcock, JJ's grandmother contacts Chandler detective Nathan Moffitt. She wants to know how to get a hold of Rexburg police because she wants a welfare check. She follows up again the next day with Detective Moffitt. What I find interesting is why it took so long between the 13th when Kay first requested the welfare check to when law enforcement actually show up at the house on the 26th. That's almost two weeks from the time it was first requested. The reason behind that could be because it's two different states communicating and I don't know how that works when it's between state lines. Maybe there's some type of procedure that we're not aware of to get this done. And we may never know or it could come out in the trial. I'm not sure the exact date, but sometime mid-November, Lori and Chad come back from their honeymoon in Kauai. On November 19th, Melanie and Brandon's divorce is finalized. She didn't even bother showing up for the divorce proceedings, and Brandon was awarded full custody of the children. I don't think it helped that 
everyone was aware that there were some other children missing at the time, as well as Melanie trespassed twice on Brandon's parents' property and did get the domestic violence enhancement. On November 23rd, Tammy Daybell's family finds out that Chad had remarried and they're extremely in shock. I'm not sure when his kids found out that he had remarried and what their response was to that. But Lori didn't even really tell her family that she had gotten married and her pattern with all of her husbands, including Chad, all five of them, was to get married, not invite her family, and then tell them after the fact. I don't understand why someone would secretly get married five times. I know that at my wedding, I wanted all of my family there, and all of my family was happy to be there. During the weekend of my wedding, 13 out of my 15 siblings were there. So I find that not necessarily concerning, but weird. Absolutely weird. There's some contradicting information of when Kay Woodcock found the actual address if it was the beginning of November or towards the end. But finally on November 25th, she is able to request that welfare check. And I don't know if it's because she finally had the address or her pushing it, rushed the communication or whatever the process was because it was, you know, the police department from Arizona had to contact the one in Rexburg, but the Rexburg police department were contacted on the 25th of November of 2019 that a welfare check was being requested by JJ's grandparents because they were concerned for his safety and no one had heard from him or seen him in over two months. Tylee was not included in the paperwork for the welfare check. No one knew that she was missing. They all knew that JJ was, but no one had really expressed concern about Tylee. So until law enforcement showed up to check for JJ, did they realize that Tylee had disappeared as well? So on the 26th of November, law enforcement show up at Lori's address in Rexburg looking for the kids. When they first show up, it's just Alex and Chad there. Chad acted like he didn't know Lori very well and stated he didn't have her phone number. That's weird because they got married, you know, three weeks before and they'd known each other since 2018. 
So red flag right there for law enforcement as they're going through this investigation. Alex told the detectives that JJ was with his grandma in Louisiana, which law enforcement knew wasn't true because Kay was the one who had requested the welfare check from the very beginning and was the one who reported that JJ was missing. Alex gave law enforcement the wrong address. He said that Lori would probably be at apartment 107, but that was a vacant apartment. They came back later that day and found Lori at home. While law enforcement were talking to Lori in her apartment, Chad Daybell tried to drive away. He was stopped by a detective. The detective talked to him again, and Chad admitted that he did have Lori's phone number, and he told the investigator that the last time he had seen JJ was in apartment 107 in October. Apartment 107 is the vacant apartment that doesn't belong to any of them. Lori tells law enforcement that JJ is with her friend, Melanie Gibb, who was the last person to actually see JJ alive in Arizona and that they were going to the movie Frozen 2. Lori gave them Melanie's phone number, but Melanie didn't answer. What law enforcement didn't know at the time was that Chad had called Melanie and told her not to answer the phone because law enforcement was going to call and they had told law enforcement that JJ was with her and so they asked her to lie once she finally talked to law enforcement. Melanie Gibb did not speak to law enforcement on the 26th. So Rexburg police asked Gilbert Police Department to go looking for Melanie Gibb at home. They went to her house. She was not there, but they were able to reach her by phone. Melanie told them that JJ had been gone for several months and he was not with her and she did not know where he was at. It also took Melanie Gibb about 10 days before telling Rexburg Police Department that Lori and Chad had asked her to lie for them. So the next day on the 27th, after not being able to find the kids, getting conflicting messages that the kids are, or that JJ's with grandma in Louisiana, oh, wait, JJ is in Arizona with Melanie, and then finding out that Tylee's not there because Lori had mentioned to law enforcement that Tylee was up at the college. But when they contacted BYU-Idaho, they did not have her enrolled, and that was another red flag for them. So on the 27th, they got a search warrant, and they went back to Lori's townhouse that she was renting. She and Chad were gone. The house had been cleaned out, 
and nobody was there. They also searched Alex's apartment as well as Melanie's. Law enforcement also searched the storage unit, the same storage unit that had the backseat of the Jeep and the tire in it at one point that was caught on camera, and they find all of the kids' stuff. Blankets, toys, photo albums, clothes, baby books, you name it. The same day that Lori and Chad disappear when law enforcement shows up, which was the 27th, is approximately the same day that Alex moves back to Arizona. Also on the 27th, detectives go to Colby Ryan's house and they ask him about Tylee and JJ if he knows where they're at. Colby calls his mom after the detectives left and he asked her what was going on and she gave him just a very generic answer. She doesn't really give him an answer. It's just like, okay, I'll got it. I got it. I'll take care of it. Um, she may or may not have asked him what the detectives wanted. It's unclear. There's conflicting information about that. After law enforcement cannot find the kids anywhere and the story is getting more and more bizarre, on the 27th is when they request assistance of the FBI in finding the two kids. So Lori and Chad abruptly leave Idaho and they spend Thanksgiving weekend in Southern California. On the 29th of November, Alex Cox marries Zulima Pastenas in Las Vegas. And on November 30th, Melanie Pulowski marries Ian Pulowski. Remember, her husband Ian is also from that same group. I'm not sure if Melanie and Ian are still together, but as you'll see in Friday's upcoming episode, Ian is warned by Brandon that there is something wrong, like there is some shady stuff and Ian will find out that someone tried to kill Brandon. So Friday's episode is going to be about December of 2019 and what happened in the timeline during that month. In the rest of the episodes moving forward, you're going to notice things that happened in chronological order actual events that pertain to the case, but also when information was released to the media. So there will be a little bit of backtracking moving forward. And that's just how this case has been the whole time.
Don't forget to subscribe, follow, rate. If you have any comments, suggestions, or just want to reach out, you can find us on social media and email us as well at crimecoffee at hotcrimecoldcoffee.com. And we'll have another regular episode for you on Friday.